Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Maggie Smith is the author of Goldenrod Poems. Maggie is the award-winning author also of Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, Lamp of the Body, and the national bestseller Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change a 2011 recipient of Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, Smith has also received several individual excellence awards from the Ohio Arts Council, two Academy of American Poets Prizes, a Pushcart Prize, and fellowships from the Sustainable Arts Foundation and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She has been widely published, appearing in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Paris Review, the Best American Poetry, and more. I absolutely loved this podcast. Welcome, Maggie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. I loved Goldenrod. I feel like it's like a memoir in poems. Like I learned so much about you, but I had to like keep digging and guessing and like figuring it all out. Like you left these little crumbs to like figure out your life. Do you know what I mean? And, and you just got to go through it together. It was very cool the way you did it. I don't know. I loved it. <laughs> oh, I love that. I mean, I, I think sometimes as metaphor is sort of like an imagistic shorthand mm-hmm. that says in a, in, a, in a concise kind of tight space, kind of gestures toward bigger things. So that, I love the idea of this being a sort of memoir in verse because it does, it does yeah. address a lot of things going on in my, in my life and in our lives, but just in more concise pieces. It seems very efficient. It's like the ultimate moms. <laughs> like, why waste the time with the whole story? I'm going to tell you about my son in like eight lines, and I'm going to tell you about my marriage. And, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, pretty. Poet- poetry is actually a great genre for 
for moms who don't have a ton of time. You know, I really, I mean, you know, the poet Lucille Clifton used to talk about that. Like, you know, you can be making dinner, stirring the soup, getting something ready, putting the soccer jersey from the washer in the dryer. And if one little idea comes to you, you write it down. And then another little idea comes to you, you write it down. And and so it's it's worked for me. You know, I started writing poems before I was a mom, but it's it's been something that's been probably easier for me to keep up than say novel writing because I can dip in and out both as a reader and as a writer and not feel like I have to remember where I was or where the characters are or what have I explained, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I feel like full length can be very unwieldy, right? It's like, it's just so much. You can't like hold it all. I don't know. Yeah. I've been yeah. trying to edit this memoir and I'm like, this is so hard. <laughs> How do I remember it? Anyway, it's harder than it. an essay, which I much prefer to write. So, but I wanted to maybe read one or two of these, if you don't mind, if that's okay. Yeah. Particularly December 18th, 2008, or just some, some of these just like caught my attention. I'm going to read two if that's okay. So, Okay. For just a fraction of a moment that afternoon, if we think of time as being a whole, you were the newest person in the world. You were the emptiest vessel on earth, knowing nothing of this place or of yourself, that you even were a, that you even were a self, that a self was something one could be, that one could be at all, and what was being. For that narrowest sliver of a whole, you were the least experienced person on earth, and then you weren't. You knew me before you knew your own body, what to do with your hands, your pink fists battering your face, we swaddled you as if against that confusion, though I tell you that confusion never leaves. The body remains a house unaware of its rooms. That is so good. Oh. I, I just love that. I mean, the body remains a house unaware of its rooms. I don't know. It's so good. Tell my, me about this. Uh, tell me about writing this poem. Yeah, the, the, the title is my daughter's birthday, my firstborn's birthday. And I actually wrote this poem in a hotel room and it came out in more or less sort of one fell swoop, which is not usually how poems happen for me. A few happen quickly. Most of them happen in tiny little fits and starts kind of accruing over a long period of time after lots and lots of revision and various versions. But I was thinking about what it means to be a newborn and sort of like that moment that you're born, you're the newest person. And what, what does that mean? And how do you figure out what it is to be a human being? And then just thinking a little bit about what we have to do for babies because they don't even know their own boundaries or edges yet, you know, clipping their tiny fingernails so they don't scratch their faces and, you know, putting socks over their little fists and swaddling them so they don't wake themselves up by punching themselves in the face, which they tend to do. And just thinking, like, actually, that sense of not knowing oneself and one's life and one's edges and one's boundaries in a way never really goes away. I mean, we, we may not scratch our faces or, or bop ourselves awake in the middle of the night, but there are still so many things I don't understand about myself and my life. And that confusion it's not something one can swaddle oneself <laughs> against. And so thinking of that as, as the kind of bigger metaphor in the poem. Oh my gosh, I love it. Maybe the, the human, the weighted blanket as, as adult swaddler, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, actually sometimes I call my son my weighted blanket because at, at nine, he's still a snuggler and still really wants to kind of drape himself over me when we're watching TV or whatever. And so I joke with him, like you are like a, 
you're like my heating pad slash <laughs> warming, you know, weighted blanket. It's perfect, actually. Just don't go <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> you also, here, let me read this one. Poem beginning with a line from Basho. Did I say that right? Yeah. The moon is brighter since the barn burned. And by burned, I mean to the bones, the rafters on the ground of a whale's ribcage. A barn is mostly kindling. No wonder it went up like that. Whoosh. Or should I question my perception? As the therapist tells me, look for evidence to support the feeling. One minute beams, the next smoke. Didn't my husband say, hardly to me at all, it was a long time coming? In this still smoldering field, I am looking for evidence. How can something stand for years? And then, just like that, where the roof was all this night. (sighs) I know. All we can do is look at each other and sigh. This was a hard one. Honestly, it's, it's somebody shared this poem around the time Goldenrod was first published. Someone shared this poem on Twitter and I, I read it again and I thought, wow, I actually don't remember writing this poem. It's one of those poems that I, I can't tell you where I was sitting. I don't know exactly how it happened. I have completely blocked out the, the writing of that particular poem. And, and it, maybe that's not that strange considering how raw some of the emotions in that in that poem are but but really the the metaphor for me is it's something that comes up and keep moving too actually is the idea that when something burns down or is destroyed there's something destructive there obviously but there's also a space that's created where something new can be built or or something new can be seen and i thought a lot about that when my marriage ended like I had the shelter of this thing for, you know, almost 19 years of my life, my entire adult life. I had the shelter of this thing. And when it burned down, it was terrifying. And yet, look at the sky. Like, without the beams, without the roof, without the walls, I was in the open and it was scary. And I was sort of exposed to the elements in ways I hadn't been since I was a kid. And really ever, you know, I I lived with my parents before I lived with my then husband. And so, but look at the view. Like, what can I see now that I couldn't see before? What is possible now that wasn't possible before? What can I build in this sort of like charred (laughs) imprint of what used to be there? It's up to me now. It's not a group project. Like, I get to decide. And so trying, trying really... In that book and in this one, I think to kind of reframe things for myself, you know, which is not to deny that something hard happened or try to snap into positive thinking right away, but to like sit with the feeling and also think, yes, but what else? Like, yes, and it's also maybe this thing. Like there are all these stars that I didn't get to look at because I had the shelter. I love that. That's like the ultimate sort of optimist, right? Like that from something terrible can come something so amazing. I'm trying. <laughs> how's, it, how's it going? You know, it's funny. I mean, I say keep moving. I'm a, I'm a recovering pessimist. Yeah. And I think I was a pessimist most of my life, but in a self-protective way, you mm-hmm. know, like when you think it's not going to go well, but you're really saying that to protect yourself in case it doesn't go well because you don't right. want to get your hopes up. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I am putting that aside because honestly, when things really, really go wrong, you need optimism in a way that you don't. When things are going pretty well and you can kind of be self-protectively pessimistic, 
Yeah, self-protective pessimism doesn't protect you when you're already at the bottom of the well. Like you need something to help you climb out of it. And so starting to think about the things that could go right instead of only the things that could go wrong has been serving me pretty well for the past two or three years. Well, I feel like the self-protective pessimism is just another way of of saying anxiety. I mean, right, it's, oh, it's yeah. basically that. It's like, I feel like if I worry about something enough, then I don't have to really worry about it anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. Like only by actively worrying do I take the risk out of flying or something, right? Like, but if I forget to worry, you know, then well, what? Yeah, and it's so funny because we worry and worry and worry. And then if the thing actually happens and it goes wrong, we get to pat ourselves in the back because we were so smart and right and we saw that coming. And so we almost feel sort of like, see, mm-hmm. I knew it. Right. And that's, I mean, that's a, a weird space to be in too. But I agree. It's that's all it's all anxious sort of uh, you know, magical thinking around around problems where really if we sort of loosened our grip a little bit and thought about the possibility that maybe the worst won't happen because nine times out of 10, it doesn't. Right. It's just that one time. (laughs) And even for the most anxious people, you know, like keep moving. I mean, you just keep, you have no choice when the worst happens. You have no choice. You, you, you figure out a way just like, and then you realize all that time spent worrying was total waste. It's just like oh. cluttering your brain <laughs> because because when the worst happens, you'll, you'll deal with it. Yep. You know, it's like I say this to my kids, like, what if I cry in school today? Okay, well, you'll handle it. Like, same with us, right? It's just yeah. easier said than done. <laughs> easier said than done for sure. Tell me also about your son's fevers. I was so worried about him in the book. Oh. What was that about? Was it diagnosed? Like, did it go away? No, he just, you know, some kids run high fevers naturally. So, you know, my daughter, if she was really sick, it would might get to 102. Rhett, if he was really sick, 105. Oh, Which if, if your firstborn never got past 102, you think, well, that's a, that's a high fever. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a kid who, you know, you take their temperature and it's 104.7, it's like, uh, I don't know what to do with this. And no, actually nothing, nothing, at least in regards to that was ever wrong. It was just, his body was different from his sister's and it was scary. And, and even now, I mean, he just runs a little hotter. If he gets a fever, he just feels a little hotter. And so I end up, you know, going and getting the washcloths and doing the little, Again, the little mittens of washcloths and the little socks of washcloths. And, and we, just, we just do it. Did you ever see the documentary on HBO? Not a documentary, sorry. Like the limited series called John Adams on HBO based on David McCullough's book. And no. I, don't know, I watched it like forever ago, but I can't get this one scene out of my head of Abigail Adams with like the washcloths back in the day, you know, with her children at home with no record, like nothing else, no tools in the toolbox, just the cloth and the fear and the kids. And every time my kids have a fever, I kind of flash back to that, you know, because it's just like, this is what we do, right? You you have to go back to just like cooling off the body of somebody you love who's struggling. And like, there's not really much you can do. Not no. much has changed since then, but anyway. No, I mean, thank goodness for like the children's Tylenol or whatever yes, in the middle exactly. of the night. But I mean, no. Antibiotics. It's, it's, true. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, at three in the morning, it really is like you, your child in a washcloth and just... And that's, and really, you know, the, the poem about that in the book is, is really a poem of sort of having a crisis of faith or a crisis of not having faith that I can lean on in that moment and thinking, goodness, I wish, I wish I, ha- I were a person of faith in this moment because 
this washcloth is not enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need to feel like something's looking out for me right now. I, I really need to feel, you know, cared for, intended to in this moment. And, and I, I feel that way a lot with my children. Like I would love more of an army of protection for them than I am able to offer on my own. Yes. Yeah. That would be nice. <laughs> it would be nice. <laughs> Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So like, how many how many days out of the week do you write poetry? Like, is this something that like you do to cope with the everyday or you work on a collection or do you write in other ways or like how often do you turn to that? I don't usually write every day unless I'm on deadline and I'm making myself do it. So, you know, and, and poems in particular, they come to me in like little bits. So I had a period about a month ago where I think I wrote nine poems in four days, which for me is like six months worth of poems. It's, I don't write that many poems in a, in a short period of time. I haven't written any poems since then. Although this morning, the, the plumber working on the burst pipe in my basement said something about the pipe that I was like, that's a metaphor. I think I startled him a little bit. I said, oh my gosh, that's a great metaphor. And he just looked at me and I was like, I'm a poet. And he was like, started laughing. He was like, okay. And I'm like, I've got to write that down. So there might be something that comes from this basement experience. But yeah, not every day. I mean, it's things just sort of, I try to keep my kind of antenna up every day and I keep my ears and my eyes open and and, and not everything gets written down right away. You know, sometimes I'll have a conversation with one of my kids or the plumber will say something or I'll see something on a walk and I might not think to, you know, type it into my phone or jot it in a notebook right away. And it might just kind of be percolating in my brain until something else maybe happens that seems like it wants to live alongside that thing. And then enough pieces begin to accrue that I feel like I need to sit down and, and write it down. So yeah, it's, it's sort of a messy process and, and not really anything. I'm, I'm not disciplined in the way that some writers are disciplined and that I sit down at my desk at 5 a.m. every morning and write for an hour. I've never been that kind of writer. Even before I was a, a parent and even before I was a single parent, I was not that kind of writer. So I'm certainly probably... <laughs> become that that kind of writer now that life is even you know more pull in many direction e than it was before so what do you do then to like cope with big feelings and all the rest during like the average day like if you're really upset about something yeah if i'm really upset about something i will call one of my closest friends or my mom 
or I will put on my colossally giant headphones and take a long walk or go for a run or jump on my little trampoline (laughs) or sometimes just take a hot bath and try to take a nap, you know, like unplug in a, Mm -hmm. in a sort of more literal way, like just really sort of disengage for a period of time if I can. But yeah, writing for me is never, it's not usually something I do in the middle of the big feeling. Mm -hmm. Like I feel the big feelings I'm working through that writing is usually something I do when I'm in a, in a sort of reflective headspace or more of a processing thinking headspace than a feeling headspace. Because especially because I write poems, I need to be able to think about form and structure and and how to be sort of concise. And I'm not in that space when I'm having big feelings. So it's usually I have to take a beat. And then a week or two later, I might think, oh, that was interesting for these reasons. That might be an essay or, oh, this line or this image won't leave my mind. I need to write this down and see maybe what I can kind of build momentum-wise off of this. And maybe it wants to be a poem. And so what do you do with the poem? Like, what do you do when you're, you you finish writing? Like, how do you know when it's a collection versus it's Mm. just a, a poem? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I'm writing a book of poems, I'm not really writing a book of poems. I write a poem at a time. And then Mm -hmm. at a certain point, usually two or three years in, I realize it's been two or three years since my last book of poems came out. I wonder how many poems I have in this Word document sitting on my, you know, on my laptop. And I open the Word document called like next book or new poems or something not very organized. And I'll see that there are hundreds of poems inside of it. And then I think, okay, there's probably a book that I can carve out of all of this stuff. And I just go through the process of, you know, with Goldenrod, I printed out every poem I had written since submitting the manuscript of my last book of poems, Good Bones, to my publisher. And so the poems in Goldenrod date back to 2016, because that's, you know, when I was handing that last book over. And I had like, oh, I don't know, like 150 poems or something, which is, you know, I think there are only 50 some in Goldenrod. So I had to go through all of that, pull out the ones I wasn't that excited about, look at the ones that I was kind of excited about and see how they might be in conversation with each other. And then, you know, what do I want the sort of entrance to the collection to be? How do I want to invite the reader in? Well, how do I envision sort of like stepping out of the book? What do I want the exit to be? And then what happens in between point A and point B? And really, it's, it's such a Luddite process. It hasn't changed at all since assembling my first book in my 20s, which is I print everything out and I shuffle them together in my hands and I lay them out on the living room floor And I look at the way poem one might transition into poem two. And if I don't like that, I find another one in the big stack that I think would be a good transition from that one. And then I go on to the next and then the next and then the next. And so it's, it's really just a big shuffling act. Yeah. And what do you do in like, what do you do when you're not writing poems in your daily life? Oh gosh, all kinds of things other than deal with plumbers. What do I do in my daily life? So like the average day is wake up get my kids up, pack their lunches, make their breakfast, get them to school, come back, walk my dog. 
And then check email, do all of that, create, you know, realize the 15 things I was supposed to be on top of that I'm not, send apology emails that try not to say I'm sorry. Uh, I'm trying to rephrase I'm sorry for the slow response as thank you for your patience. I like that. We, we know what this is like. And then it just depends. You know, if, if I have a book review or like an article for the post or something due, I might work on that and try to bang out a draft while my head is clear. I might have a podcast to record or an interview I have to do. And so I might do that, or I might have a meeting with one of my graduate students, or I might need to look at a packet of their poems and give them feedback. It's, yeah, it's, it's sort of a a cobbled together life from various writing and mothering related activities. I could, I could use that description as well. That's a great description (laughs) of life. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It's a, it's a good life and no two days are really ever exactly the same. You know, like there's, there are like some posts that remain, like I'm always getting them up and always packing the lunch. I'm always, you know, I pick my son up for lunch still because he's unvaccinated. So I bring him home during the day for lunch so he doesn't have to be unmasked in his school building. So that breaks my day into chunks as well, because I've got an hour in the middle of the day where I'm eating a sandwich and playing Uno with a small person and then taking him back to school. And then I have to do school pickup and then I have to make dinner. So the the mothering pieces of my day are the sort of unmovable ones. And then around those beams, I'm able to sort of move in different ways and get and get things accomplished. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I'm like, well, I know I pick up and drop off. And I try to do as much work as I can between nine and three. And then who knows? (laughs) So yes, that's the life. That's the life. Of course, you end up with all these amazing poetry collections. So it's amazing. (laughs) I mean, I try to, I try to be productive, but it's, you know, it takes a long time. I mean, you know, Goldenrod, it's funny. Someone was like, you, you published Keep Moving in 2020 and Goldenrod in 2021. And I said, well, yes, I did, but I didn't write them at the same time. I mean, Goldenrod, that book took me five or six years to write very slowly over time. So the fact that it came out a year after Keep Moving doesn't mean that I spent the year between Keep Moving and Goldenrod pounding out 54 poems. It's just, that was the, that was the way it happened on the schedule, but no, I'm, I'm not quite that prolific. So what advice would you have for aspiring, aspiring poets? I would say read as widely as you can. Read as widely as you can. So many people I talk to when, they, when I say I'm a poet, they're like, oh, that was the hardest class for me in school. Or I hated poetry. I always felt like it was so confusing. I loved writing everything else and poetry was always the hardest thing. And I think you know, a lot of us were just taught it poorly mm-hmm. or we haven't read widely enough to know really what's out there. There are so many living poets writing right now work that is just flat out gorgeous and moving, but also accessible and understandable and not esoteric necessarily, you know, not something that you feel like you need to go get a PhD to understand what's happening in it. So for people who want to write, my first piece of advice is always read more because when in, until you really know what's being done out there, it's hard to start doing it yourself. And I also think it it gives it gives people a great great inspiration. If I'm ever stuck and I feel like I I'm not really writing many poems, the first thing I want to do is read other people's poems because reading beautiful sentences and 
and really stunning images or, or really unexpected descriptions of things always kind of sparks my brain and gets me going in a new direction. I find it incredibly inspiring. So yeah, just more books. That's, that's the answer to so many things. More books. <laughs> more books. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, Maggie, thank you so much. Thanks for talking about Goldenrod. I didn't even hold this up. Your Keep Moving Journal, which I'm also obsessed with and like couldn't Aww. even figure, which is so great. I mean, if, if I ever was going to sit down and do do a journal. This would be the one. I like, oh, but I'm not going to have time to do it, but it's really great. And it's a great gift. And <laughs> I, I you feel know, you, you know, <laughs> anyway, uh, well, thank, thank you, you so much. No, this was a joy. You too. All right. Have a great day. Stay you in touch. Too. Take care. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of moms. Don't have time to read books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.